if you would go ahead and join me in the book of Acts, specifically chapter 17. As I feel like that's the place where God has laid out an assignment for us tonight to join in together with. How many of you feel like you're just ordinary? Just nothing special, run-of-the-mill, average Joe kind of a person, kind of a guy, kind of a girl. Anybody in here tonight just feel ordinary? It's not a trick question. I mean, if you feel just straight up ordinary, like nothing special about your life or about who you are as a person, I can agree with that. But that's why I love the book of Acts. Because it shows God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We see the birth of the church take place in the book of Acts. We see miracles and wonders being done through God's people in the book of Acts. We see people being saved on a regular basis from their sin in Jesus' name all throughout the book of Acts. This particular book is a powerful reminder that even today, God still uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Now, as we approach our text for tonight, Paul and Silas have been on a missionary journey going from city to city when they enter into a city known as Thessalonica. And that's where we pick the story up. In Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1, God's word says this, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, and when they heard these things, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul and Silas enter this city as the next stop on their missional quest that they have been on. And this man named Jason opens up his home to them as somewhat of a base of operations, if you will, for them to stay at while they are there sharing the gospel with the people around him. And Paul goes out and just starts doing what he does everywhere. He goes into the synagogue, he goes into the church, so to speak, and he begins to engage those people in a conversation about Jesus and who he was and what he came to do. And the text tells us that after Paul reasoned with them and proved that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and that he and he alone can save us from our sins, it says that a great many of the devout Greeks and some leading women believed. This is really nothing new throughout the book of Acts. Word of Jesus, who he is and what he had done on the cross and his resurrection were spreading like wildfire all across the globe. People everywhere were believing in him for salvation, but the religious people, the church people, the quote-unquote people of God, they hated it. They couldn't stand what Paul was doing because they didn't believe that Jesus 
was indeed the Son of God. And so they would do whatever they could to stop Paul and these disciples from spreading the name of Jesus and spreading his gospel message throughout the region. And like we see here, all throughout the book of Acts and other places, they get angry and they form a mob and they end up storming Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas. But when they didn't find them, they did the next best thing they could and they drug Jason, who they considered to be their accomplice to crime, before the police. And they made this statement. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Let's talk for the next few moments about those who rock the world. What Jesus had done and was doing through his disciples in spreading the gospel was literally changing the course of history. As these guys put it, it was turning the world upside down. It was challenging and changing everything they thought they knew, and it was rocking their world, so to speak. The vast majority of people in this room tonight, you're a part of Generation Z or Gen Z, born from 1997 to 2012. And sociologists say that your specific generation is likely to see more political and social change in your lifetime than perhaps any other generation that has crossed the face of this earth, which they translate into this, giving you the opportunity to change the world on a vastly large scale. I think that's great. But as I look at you guys tonight, I don't want your generation to just be known for changing the world politically. I don't want your generation to just be known for changing the world socially. I want to see a generation rise up and be known for changing the world spiritually. I want you to quite literally rock this world for Jesus Christ. But what does it take to do that? What does it take to turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ? And I want to point out some things to you tonight that I think are key. If you want to be a part of a generation that rocks your world for the cause of Christ and for building his kingdom, then these things have to be evident in your life. You've got to make some choices. And the first choice is you have to choose movement over idleness. If you go back at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 17, I want to read the first couple of verses to you again. It says, when they had passed, talking about Paul and Silas, through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there's a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So remember, and keep in mind, I told you Paul and Silas were on a missionary journey. And all throughout the book of Acts, we see that the disciples are constantly on the move and carrying the gospel from city to city and town to town. But the movement that I want you to see tonight isn't necessarily in the sense of physical movement. I'm not talking about movement in your life necessarily in the sense of going from place to place, from city to city, from packing your bags here and moving them over there. The movement that I want you to see is in the sense of taking gospel action. While in the city, we see Paul go into the synagogue 
and engage people in conversation about Jesus. And the Bible tells us that this was his custom. In other words, Paul had a habit of doing this everywhere that he went. So whatever city he found himself in, he would always look and see if he could find a place of prayer or a synagogue. And he would enter himself into that environment with the purpose of engaging the people that he found there with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it was his habit. It was his custom to do that. He took initiative. He took action. He was at work moving for Jesus and finding people that needed to know about his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Listen, if you're going to rock the world around you for Jesus, you have got to be in motion. You can't just be sitting around idle. You can't be sitting around lazy. You can't be sitting around unconcerned if you're going to rock your world for the cause of Jesus Christ. I've got a burden upon my heart that we've got too many believers that are just idle. You're not doing anything. You know Jesus, you have a relationship with Jesus, but you're not doing anything to expand his kingdom. When was the last time you shared your testimony with somebody? When was the last time you prayed and asked God for an opportunity to send somebody to cross your path so that you could point them to this great and mighty Jesus that you came in here and sung about tonight who so radically changed your life, but for whatever reason, we've decided he's not worth sharing with anybody else so that he might can radically change theirs. Too many idle believers in the church now. Start taking initiative, start taking action and engaging the people around you for the sake of leading them to Jesus. Here's one thing that I have learned. Everybody wants to be a part of and see a movement of God. Every believer that I talk to, if I were to ask them, hey, would you desire to be a part of and see a movement of God in your lifetime? Every single one of them would say, absolutely. I want to be a part of something. I want to be a part of. I want to see a movement of God. But I promise you this. We will not see a movement of God without moving for God. It will not happen. When God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and from you I'm going to make a great nation of people. So much so that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed in and through you. But you've got to move your family first. When God showed up and found Moses in Midian, he said, Moses, I want to use you as my chosen vessel to liberate my people from Egyptian bondage. But you've got to move from Midian back to Egypt in order for that to happen. When Joshua was leading the Israelites into the promised land and they came to the Jordan River that separated them from the promise that God had promised and laid out for them, he says, Joshua, I'm going to lead you into this place. You and this people, they're going to cross the Jordan River, but you've got to put your feet in it first. You have got to move. We will not see a movement of God without first moving for God. So start moving. Start moving and never stop moving in your work to continue making Jesus known. If you want to rock your world, if you want to turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ, you have got to choose movement over idleness, but you've also got to choose to fight over flight. Look at verse 5 in chapter 17. That says, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Paul, as well as the rest of the disciples and believers, were indeed being used to turn the world upside down. But it wasn't without opposition and extreme difficulty at times. They were persecuted. They were beaten. They were tortured. They were imprisoned. They were starved. They were ridiculed. 
to reference 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us a list of all the things that he endured for the cause of carrying the name of Christ. And I'm just going to paraphrase all the things that he lists out in that passage. He says, I have been thrown in prison. I've received countless beatings, most often times to the point of nearly dying. I have been whipped five times. I've been beaten with rods three times. I've been stoned once, shipwrecked three times. And on top of that, it's not just that I face mobs here in this place, but I face them everywhere that I go. In spite of all that, they didn't choose to run away from the mission that God had left them with. They chose to fight on. Now, I'm not talking about brawling. I ain't talking about throwing haymakers with the people that bring opposition into our lives. When they drug Jason out of his house, he didn't come up swinging at everybody. So I'm not talking about that kind of fight. I'm not talking about as a people of God when we face opposition from the enemy that may come in the form of flesh, which remember, we don't fight against flesh and blood. I'm not saying the next time somebody steps in front of you and tries to keep you from fulfilling the purpose God has placed in your life, you take a swing at them. Obviously, that wouldn't be very loving. Probably have a difficult time sharing the gospel with them after you give them a black eye. The fight that I'm talking about is more of an attitude than an action. Because whether you realize it or not, flipping the world does require fighting the world. And let me give you a reality check. If you're set on rocking your world for Jesus, opposition is coming. I can promise you. When you push forward the kingdom of heaven, you will face pushback from the forces of hell. It is a guarantee. The devil will fight you. He will attack you on all Fronts and not just you, but the people around you as well. They wanted to fight Paul and Silas. But when they went to Jason's house and didn't find them, who'd they drag out? They drug Jason out. When you take a stand for Jesus, when you commit to setting your world upside down for his glory, he will attack you. But he won't just attack you, he will attack the people around you. He'll attack your friends. He'll attack family members. He'll attack a future spouse one day. Whatever he can do and whatever he can use to get into your life, to cause you to become discouraged, to cause you to give up on the fight, that's what he will do. He don't fight fair. Our enemy is a dirty fighter. He will sucker punch you in the back of the head any given moment that he finds the opportunity. But listen to what God's word says about the fight that we face with our enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 55 through 57, Paul, the same guy, writes this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, But thanks be to God who in Christ always, that's always, leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I know we face a fight with our adversary, but how many of you are thankful that thanks be to Christ, we already have an assured victory in him. So even though the enemy shows up with a fight, he's already fighting from a place of defeat because we have Christ inside of us who is greater than the one that is in the world. So it's a guaranteed win on your behalf. Listen to me. 
I want you to understand the reality of the fight, but I don't want you to fear the fight. Don't fear the fight. Fear not ever being seen by the enemy is worth fighting. Let me say it one more time. Don't fear the fight. But fear not ever being seen by the enemy as worth fighting. I want the work that I'm doing for the cause of Christ to be something that the forces of hell take notice of because it's significant. Turning the world upside down means digging in and fighting when people say you're crazy. Turning your world upside down for Christ means digging in and fighting when it's unpopular. Turning your world upside down for Christ means digging in and fighting when those that are closest to you turn against you. But if we want to rock the world for Jesus, we've got to choose to fight instead of flight. But you've also got to choose boldness over timidness. Let's rewind back to Acts chapter 4 for this particular part. Acts chapter 4 and verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So in Acts chapter 4, we have these men by the name of Peter and John who were also disciples of Jesus. And they had a similar instance after healing a man who couldn't walk. The religious people of that time once again got upset. And just like they formed a mob against Paul and Silas and the work that they were doing, they formed a mob against Peter and John. And they were thrown in prison and they threatened them not to speak about Jesus ever again. Yet they got together with other believers, which is what we just saw in Acts chapter 4 and verse 29 and 30. They got together with other believers and prayed for boldness to continue doing just the thing that they were threatened to not do anymore. Jesus, if you will give us boldness, we'll speak while you stretch. So watch this. If we will do the speaking out, Jesus will do the stretching out and perform miracles and signs and wonders in his name that lead to people coming to a faith relationship with him that only he can do. The kinds of things that turn the world upside down are the kinds of things that Jesus will do if we in boldness speak out unashamedly of who he is and what he has done and what he can do in the lives of others. There has got to be boldness in our lives instead of timidness. Turning the world upside down requires boldness. And as believers, by the way, all throughout Scripture, we're told to be conquerors, not cowards. Believers are to be conquerors, not cowards. Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 and 8 says this, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So from what we see in Scripture, Christians can't be cowards. Our Almighty God, who is Lord over a kingdom that is unshakable, 
and who himself is like a consuming fire, has no taste for cowards in his army. When you step out in boldness, proclaiming the goodness of God, he begins doing things that will amaze you and impact others. Let me give you a key point worth remembering about boldness. Boldness breeds boldness. When I was in Guatemala a few years ago on a mission trip, the missionaries there, water's a big deal. Having a clean source of water is a big deal where they live. And so at their ministry center, they had found out that, coincidentally, right, there was a clean water underground well right in the place where God had led them to build their ministry center. And so they were in the process of having this crew come in and dig this well out so they could tap into that water and have a source of clean water there at their ministry center. And they had these five guys there working on it, and they didn't have nice machinery like we do. There wasn't a big crane that was scooping it all out and making light and easy work out of it. These guys had a rope set up on three poles that had crossed over the top of the opening of the well, and they would lower them down on a nylon rope, and one of them would take a five-gallon bucket down there with him, and he would hand-scoop the dirt and the rock and put it in that bucket, ring a bell, they would ring it up and dump it out and send it back down. On and on and on that went. And when I was there, they had gotten down, it was in the middle of a drought, so they were trying to get down to the top of the water table. And at that point, the well was 175 feet deep. And I'm there with the missionary, his name's Daniel McIntyre, and he says, hey, you want to go down it? I'm like, no. Do you see what they're lowering those cats down? It's a nylon rope on three pieces of wood. And I don't know if you've seen me in comparison to a Guatemalan, but we ain't exactly the same size. They average out about a buck 30, a buck 40. I average out about, don't worry about it. But it's significant, all right? And so I told Daniel, I said, I'll tell you what. I'll go down if you go down first. Coward. He said, all right, I'll go. So he walks over and they strap him in. They lower him down. It takes him about eight minutes to get to the bottom. About... 12 minutes to come back up because it's easier letting down than pulling that weight back up. And so after he goes, well, I got to step up now. Right? It's a matter of pride for a guy now. I'm not going to let some guy outdo me, right? And so I step up and I get over the hole, and it's about as wide as the width of my shoulders. Takes him about 15 minutes to get me down. 175 feet. Takes him about 20 minutes to get me back up. My legs were asleep by the time I got to the top. The only reason I did it was because when I saw Daniel do it and nothing negative, nothing bad happened, he didn't get stuck down in the bottom, his boldness did what? It bred boldness inside of me. Listen to me, men and women, and God, the same thing is true in our lives. When you step out in boldness and you live unashamedly for the glory and for the name of Jesus, it breeds boldness in the other believers around you. How much easier does it make for us to lock arms with somebody else who's already being bold with Christ? There's some of you sitting here tonight, self-admittedly, you're timid about your faith. 
What a benefit it would be if a room full of believers got bold about their faith and encouraged one another to live out a bold type of faith unashamedly to the people around them. Boldness breeds boldness. And those who rock the world around them for the cause of Christ choose boldness over timidness every single time. One last thing you've got to choose. You've got to choose to be spirit-filled over self-focused. In the same passage in Acts chapter 4, after these believers had prayed for boldness and asked that God would give it to them, look at what happens in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The people God uses to turn a world upside down are always spirit-filled over self-focused. But this step comes with a major inner battle. The self has a will of its own. Our self has a will of its own that wants to seek out its own purpose, that wants to draw out its own plans for our life. Our self has desires of its own, things that we want to achieve, things that we want to accomplish. And our self has a character of its own that prioritizes you over everybody else every single time. That's why God's word tells us self has to be denied. The spirit-filled person aligns their will with the will of God and accepts his purpose and his plan for my life. A spirit-filled person aligns their desire with the desires of God. Whatever he decides to achieve, whatever he decides to accomplish in and through my life is what I desire. The spirit-filled person aligns their character with the character of God. So I began to act and speak and live in a manner in which he lived in the form of Jesus Christ here on this earth. My character begins to take on his character. These are the kind of people God is seeking to use in a way that changes the world. As we finish up tonight, I want you to think about this one last statement. If you're going to be used to rock your world for Jesus, if you're going to be someone that is used to literally turn your world upside down for the glory of Jesus, then you have to get over what you perceive as your capacity to influence. Get over what you perceive as your capacity to to influence. Why? Because most of our perceptions are what we consider small and insignificant on the influential scale. Your capacity to influence isn't determined by the number of followers you have on social media. I'm going to say that one more time because I think for the audience in this room, it's worth allowing it to sink in. Your capacity to influence isn't determined by the number of followers you have on social media. Let me tell you something about influence. When it comes to influence, everybody wants to look at the scope. When it comes to influence, everybody wants to look at the scope. In other words, how wide can it be? How wide can that influence spread? But it's really about the substance. How deep did it originate? Earthquakes are one of the most powerful forces on our planet. They literally rock the world on the surface. But they originate beneath it. I told you, everybody wants to look at the scope of influence. 
How wide can it be? I'm telling you that influence has to be looked at in its substance. How deep did it originate? Earthquakes, the most powerful forces, they rock the surface, but they originate beneath the surface. We see the effects of shock waves that ripple out as a result of deep shifting in. Our influence on this world for Jesus will be significant if we allow God to do some shifting on the inner. Those who rock the world, those who turn their world upside down for the cause of Christ, their movement, their fight, their boldness, their feeling are shockwaves that resulted from a shifting deep inside of them. And what I have been praying over you guys in preparation for this very night is that when it came down to the end of this service, God would do a deep shifting inside of our souls that would lead to an influential impact that spreads out a lot wider than it would if it didn't get placed deep down within us to turn the world upside down seems like a rather bold impossible thing Jesus did it with just 12 faithful but on the day of Pentecost in Acts Chapter 2 turned into a few thousand faithful. But it still seems like a big task, right? And there's some 8 billion people in our world right now. So I'll tell you what. With Jesus' disciples, it started on a small scale. It turned into something world-changing. Let's make a deal tonight. Let's start on a small scale. Here's what I want to see happen in your lives. I'm not going to ask you to turn the world upside down for Jesus. But I want to see some of you turn your families upside down for Jesus. I want to see us turn our friend circles upside down for Jesus. I want to see us turn our workplaces upside down for Jesus. I want to see a generation rise up and turn their dorm rooms upside down for Jesus. I want to see a generation rise up that turns their campus upside down for Jesus. It starts small. But when it catches fire, it grows bigger. My friends, my classmates, my workplace, my family, my dorm room, my campus, this community, this city, this state, this nation, this world. It starts small. But when the impact is placed down deep, the shockwaves have the potential to ripple out for miles. Man, guys, do you want to rock your world for Jesus? Do you want things to literally be turned upside down in ways that are unexplainable other than the truth that it can only be the power of Christ at work?
two souls saved two weeks ago can become four the next week, can become eight the next week, can become 16 the next week, can become 32 the next week. What would it be to come into this place one week and we can't even get to worship in the Word because our entire time is filled up with the baptism of new believers. Generation Z, rise up. It's your time. And it starts now. You can influence your campus for Christ in ways that it has never been before. Who wants to be a part of it? Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for His glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.